from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. This week, we'll be talking cybersecurity trends before the bottom of the hour break. And after the bottom of the hour break, we will be talking election hacks and hacking. Uh, my guest this week is Stephanie Ewing Otmers, and uh, she's with a company called Delta Risk. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your background, Stephanie, and uh, Delta Risk? And uh, thank you again for joining us this week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, I've been working at Delta Risk, which has its headquarters here in San Antonio, Texas, um, since February of last year, coming up on my one-year anniversary. And um, prior to that, been kind of in the security space for a while. Um, I've got about 16 years of experience in IT, and um, I focus a lot on the human factor, so training, exercising, the people problem, um, business and risk management as it applies to the security practice. At Delta Risk, we've got quite a few specialties. Um, we're a pretty small consulting firm, although we're growing very rapidly. I think when I started, we had 20 employees last year, and now we're up to about 80. But we focus on advisory services around risk management and assessment, um, framework and, and plan, you know, program strategy for organizations, as well as managed services. So your typical security monitoring, um, your hunt activities and you know, ongoing um, eyes on glass type services. And then we have a third area of focus for response. So in the event of you know, worst case scenario, We've got the guys to come in, guys and gals to come in and help organizations effectively respond to incidents. Yeah, and those incidents are almost always caused by people. There's always a human factor, yes. Yes, there is, yes. Yes. So uh, to, to kick off the, the program here this week, we're going to talk about some of the cybersecurity trends for uh, 2017. Uh, this is a still uh, good we're early in the year and i think as as we look at uh, where things are going there's uh, quite a few things that are evolving um, cyber liability insurance cyber security insurance is something that's new not many companies have it out yet but there's a, a good some changes coming on that this year it sounds like there's a lot of evolution with cybersecurity insurance um, more and more what we're seeing year over year is just changes to the policies right because as more organizations do bring cyber insurance into their mix of risk management um, and the inevitable happens they're leveraging those policies and the insurance companies are having to make adjustments because they're paying out so you really um, the biggest thing we see is organizations having to look at their policies or get policies and look at the options for those policies to make sure they understand the loopholes or the gaps in coverage as defined in those policies because they are constantly changing. Um, that's something that um, the, the, the business folks really need to take a careful look at um, throughout the organization every time there's a renewal or a new policy or the opportunity to leverage the policy. Yeah, and uh, so what you're saying there is if uh, like I had homeowner's insurance and my homeowner's insurance uh, covered uh, tornadoes in San Antonio, but didn't cover fires. And this is what you're saying is that maybe last year's policies covered tornadoes and fires. And this year, if I burn my house down, my homeowner's insurance doesn't cover it anymore. Exactly, exactly. So that scrutiny over what is covered and for what you're paying, uh, we will see differences in premiums and policies. We'll see a lot of 
um, added um, stipulations to policies in ways that that is evolving and changing. So a, a constant look at that sort of thing. So uh, another one of the uh, ones on this list, they, they call it the Internet of Horrifying Things. This is uh, quite entertaining as I'm looking at, at the notes <laughs> that we have here prepared for the, uh, the program this week. Uh, we, we did actually a whole uh, episode talking about Internet of Things and Internet of Things security on this. If you uh, wanted to look that up as a listener out there in the audience, so it's on the iTunes podcast service, on our YouTube channel, or on www.cybertalkradio.com. But uh, this is one that now it's gone from Internet of Things when we did that episode back in 2016 to now the Internet of Horrifying Things. So what are you seeing uh, going on there with these uh, devices that are now uh, plugged in and connected in everyone's homes and businesses? Well, and I'll tell you that, that I'll give the, I'll give a plug to one of my colleagues who wrote a blog, uh, this uh, 17 trends to, to follow in 2017, uh, Ryan with Delta Risk, and it's published out on our website. So I'll, I'll give that catchy term uh, credit to Ryan. And, you know, the bottom line is we're, there's more technology in every aspect of our life. I think they're going to be coming out with smart hairbrushes for me here pretty soon that are going to be able to let me know when I need to condition and send an alert to my iPhone. Um, but the more and more that we're evolving, security is not a feature. Security is not built in. Um, it's not, you know, we're looking at a commodity, we're looking at commodities that when we're dealing with commodities do not have security built in. And you've seen t tons of things in the news, and we're going to see more to come of these little nuances of vulnerability and everything from your electronic toothbrush to your refrigerator to your pacemaker to your um, hairbrush. Someone's going to bring that out now that I now that I mentioned. For sure, yes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, we've seen uh, ransomware hit uh, some of the televisions now here. So uh, this stuff is coming uh, both on the devices being used to compromise your network um, and then as well as um, just them coming in and looking for another way to uh, extract capital from uh, individuals and businesses by um, taking control of your Internet of Things and uh, looking to ransom you. Uh, if you're looking for that Delta Risk website, it is uh, Delta, D-E-L-T-A dash risk, R-I-S-K dot net forward slash blog, B-L-O-G, and that should get you to their overall blog and then you could check out this uh, post that we're using here as a part of our notes for the program this week. Uh, and I tell you, the day that ransomware hits my wine refrigerator, I'm going to really be paying. Yeah, Is it, especially if it could lock the fridge out. Just, <laughs> Don't lock me out of the wine cooler. No. <laughs> yeah, we joke, but it's coming soon. I'm afraid. Uh, yes. <laughs> so this uh, another one of our, our pieces in here says passwords aren't going anywhere. Everyone knows that passwords are horrible, but we can't get rid of them. They're just not going anywhere. And, you know, this is not new news. You know, this is not a new trend. I think we, we revisit this and, and keep staying hopeful, you know, as security industry professionals. But we really just don't see, with all the things that we've been trying, they're just fundamentals that we just have, fundamental problems um, in technology security that we have not solved um, so we need to keep in mind the human behaviors around these fundamental things and keep reinforcing through training and through policy and, and standards, you know, to keep them at least to a higher level, but because they're not going to go out of um, the mix anytime soon. 
Yeah, and, and with passwords, many folks go, well, why don't we just go to biometrics and replace a password? And, and my short answer on that one is your fingerprint can never change. It's always going to be your fingerprint. Uh, so if you lost your, quote, password once, if it got hacked, if that fingerprint gets into a database somewhere, it's no longer something secure and separate and unique. So while you can use it to auth into your iPhone, like it's probably okay for that, but you wouldn't want to be able to send some digital fingerprint of your finger to, across to a website to authenticate and log in because once it was there, it it's gone and it's the same thing everywhere. It's the equivalent of using the same password on every site, which if you're doing that right now, please stop. Um, go pick LastPass, 1Password. There's a number of password managers out there that will make it easy for you to use a different password on every application and website without having to remember all of them. Agreed. Agreed. So you mentioned that, that Delta Risk does uh, some incident response. And this is one where I, I think we keep seeing these stats that more and more businesses are getting breached. Um, but as I go out and have conversations, it does not seem like more of them have an incident response plan in place. And it does not seem like that it, even if they have a plan and they think they can do it all themselves, almost no one has an incident response vendor lined up before the incident they're usually frantically going to google and typing in incident response help me and hopefully they find someone that can start for them immediately but that seems like the wrong way to go about that piece yeah i would agree that googling an incident response checklist in the actual real live event is probably not the best plan and you're right i mean this is a specialty area for me and um, i focus a lot of my time with clients on this exact topic and we're still seeing um despite a lot of effort um, that the average time to detect an incident is still very lengthy. And then once we do know, the average time to respond is still increasingly lengthy. And the trend is showing that um, response times are increasing, not decreasing. So what is the reason for that? Um, that our plans are not fully documented or they're not vetted or they, you know, they're not vetted in to verify that they will work uh, people aren't trained to them. They don't have the right uh, procedures and actions in them. Um, there's a variety of reasons, but the bottom line is revisiting incident response planning in, in advance you know, of an event is the number one recommendation. We can't get away from it. Um, so we spend a lot of time working with organizations to look at the meat of their plan, um, identify how that is going to work for them. And I find a lot of times that there's one person in an organization that has written that plan if they do have one, and they've never circulated it with other teams, um, with other folks, you know, maybe outside of the security team. In a lot of cases, communications departments have not been brought into the conversation, legal has not been brought in, HR, you know, non-technical as well as the technical teams. And these are not plans that are going to work for you in a real life event. No, I mean, everyone does a, a fire drill for their building. So they pull the fire alarm. We all have to walk out to the parking lot. No one ever pulls the fire, the cybersecurity fire alarm and runs folks through a tabletop version even of what do we do in a real incident situation. And when I say nobody, put an asterisk on that. There's a handful of organizations out there that are mature that, that go through and do this. But I think we see a good amount of security fatigue um, out where folks feel like even if I did this, when the event actually happens, we're still not going to be able to execute on it. Or if we do a tabletop simulation of an event, 
I'm going to get a list of things we need to go fix, but I'm not going to have the budget or buy-in from the departments across the company to actually address them and fix them. And this uh, applies to both public and private sector. Uh, we had Congressman Heard on CyberTalk Radio, um, and you can look that up, up on the iTunes podcast or YouTube replay, where he had talked about uh, one of the uh, government agencies had a remediation uh, report came out, and six months after that report, he was uh, interviewing on one of the committee panels uh, a member of that IT leadership team, and they didn't know how many incidents or how many issues they had. They didn't know if they had addressed any of them. So these are things, as you said, incidents are happening. Um, they're not getting addressed or vulnerabilities are getting identified and they're not getting addressed um, because it feels for a lot of non-security folks that these security things are just getting in the way all the time because it's a new incident every single day or every single week. Yeah, I, I would agree that there's a lot being left on the table unaddressed. Um, you know, my fear is, as you described, that organizations are staying away from rehearsing and practicing and vetting plans for fear of that after-action list. Um, I, I have to say, you know, I, I have to hope that, that that that's not a trend that that continues. That we start to really look things in the face and say we have to we have to address these things. And and you're right, you know, organizations with more resources, um, and depending on the criticality of their industry, um, there's variability here into whether or not they are doing things um, such as incident response planning and exercises. And so much of it, you know, is ingrained in. Um, military and Department of Defense and, you know, all of our federal practices. Um, so more and more, we're, you know, one of the main pillars of the work that we do at Delta Risk is to try to really lead the charge on getting organizations, small, medium, and large on the commercial side, um, engaging in this and finding ways to build it into their program that is efficient and affordable um, and reasonable for them to do without being so overwhelmed by the outcome of it. Um, so it, it's a challenge for sure and especially with the smaller organizations with less resources I think are really relying on a checklist on the internet or something like that and there's good resources available for those type of businesses but they still have to find a way to practice and vet some of that otherwise they're not going to be building the muscle memory for it and another point that you made I think Part of the issue in the way some organizations are rehearsing and exercising is that they're too concerned about specific types of events. Oh, I have to deal with ransomware or I have to deal with denial of service. It's really like as security continues, well, there's so many kinds of events that your organization is going to be hit with every day. So the, the practicing to build your muscle memory is more around your response activities and less around the type of event that it is. And so that's the muscle that you want to be practicing, is how the team works together, how communications flow, how the technical teams trigger other actions, how you're per, per, you know, preserving the evidence and things like that. Not so much being bogged down by the type of events and incidents that organizations are faced. Yeah. And you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio. Uh, I'm joined this week by Stephanie Ewing Otmers from Delta Risk, and we're talking through cybersecurity trends for 2017. After the news, traffic, and weather, bottom of the hour break, uh, we will be talking about election hacks and election hacking and how 
uh, all of these uh, security things can influence uh, our nation and governments worldwide. So uh, before uh, this intro, we were talking through just incident response and, and how to uh, deal with that. Make sure that you actually put a plan in place and test the plan. A plan that has not been tested is not useful. Uh, this also ties into um, backups, which is uh, one of these trends that backups are important. And if you haven't tested a restore from your backup, it's not a backup yet. It's a prayer. Exactly, and especially in light of the other trend, which is ransomware is going to continue to inundate us. Ransomware is not new. Um, backup technology is not new. We need to take into account that as we're getting hit more and more, um, it becomes even you know, more critical to the plan um, to have a backup strategy tested and in place. Yeah. And you also had mentioned, as we were talking through incident response, one of the incident types was a denial of service. Uh, so this is one we saw a big one at the end of 2016. Uh, we've had a few folks on this program predict that we're going to have even a much larger one in 2017. So this is, I think, not a, a new topic for us. Uh, this may be new if you're a listener this week. Um, but if a denial of service attack is when um, attackers use maybe those Internet of Things, those horrible Internet of Things uh, devices to flood traffic into a location and shut it down. And if they pick an Internet infrastructure piece, they can shut the Internet down at a hole. Exactly. And so, you know, where where in our response plan do we factor in that um, that significant type of event. What's our first, you know, what are, what are those things that we need to get back up and running? And I think we're still talking about fundamentals in our security program and our planning, things like backups. You know, we cannot get away from fundamentals year over year as we're talking about our security strategy. So we've, we've got all of these different types of incidents and all this different type of security information. Uh, and one of the, the things, so there's agents out on all these endpoints. They tie back into these security platforms. How, how are people thinking in 2017 about security information, endpoints, information management systems, and those, quote, eyes on glass, as you had said at the, the start of the program here today? Well, I, I think one of the biggest challenges that organizations are facing is all that data, right? So now that we have so much activity going on at the endpoint and we've all recognized that, you know, that that perimeter as we defined it before no longer exists. So now we've got, you know, the big techno security technology push is, you know, agents on the endpoint and, you know, the ability to monitor and track everything going on in the endpoints. So that's just creating even more data um, that needs correlation and analysis and it needs to go somewhere into a sim and you need skilled uh, folks to be able to, um, you know, serve as the eyes on glass for that. And most organizations are not resourced um, for the monitoring and the staffing that is required to really kind of deal with this 800 pound gorilla. I mean, it's just so much data. And as much as the SIM uh, providers will sell you on all the greatest in their analytics, and there's all these improvements from a technology perspective, we're still just taking a tremendously long amount of time to identify that attacks are going on in our environments. So the problem is nowhere closer to being solved um, now that we have even more data at our disposal. Yeah. I mean, imagine that you were the securing a, a high-rise building and you have 400 security cameras in this building and you have two people that are sitting down watching 
200 screens each in the lobby, somebody could break into the building and evade their ability to see it. You've got camera footage of the whole thing on the physical security side, but it might be six months later that somebody goes in to open a file cabinet and realizes a file's missing, and now you're going back through six months' worth of video footage to try to figure out who took the file out of the file cabinet. So this same right. thing is happening on the digital side of the imp- of this. And I mean, part of this is you like in the security camera situation, you can go hire more people to sit in front of those security cameras. Uh, but in this cyber world, uh, we have a real skills gap. And that was uh, one of the things that you, we had been talking about a little bit off air. Can you go into that skills gap of like, where do we find or train or what's going on with the cybersecurity talent in 2017? So again, this this is not a new challenge. Over the last few years, we've been hearing a lot about the skills gap and efforts related to the skills gap. You know, what are we doing about it? Universities, colleges, technology schools are coming out with you know more and more cyber, you know, cyber academic programs. You know, we need to get more young people. Um, we've got tons of great programs to get more people interested in the career field. The, the bigger challenge is that cybersecurity is not an entry-level profession, in my opinion. It takes a combination of education and practical experience, and that experience comes from all areas of the business, not just IT. So what we are grooming in academia doesn't have that well-roundedness, and I think what we haven't been doing is um, in, enticing professionals from other areas of the business to come over into security and gain and add some of those security skill sets to their experience that they already have. When we can start doing that, we're going to get more um, actionable and um, intelligent security professionals coming, you know, coming in to help fill the skills gap. Otherwise, right now, we're really dealing with I think the uh, statistic that I saw last week was that a 50% of organizations surveyed that had open positions, they felt like 84% of the candidates were not qualified. Yeah. And that's because maybe they've got a degree or maybe they have a certification, but they don't have the hands-on experience or number of years. Or maybe they do have number of years, but they haven't backed it up with academia and and certificates. So it's a combination of experience with security. This is not there are entry level activities but for the most part it takes a lot of different types of skills to make good security professionals and we're up you know as counter hackers we're up against some very sophisticated um, skills and so that's what we need to really be breeding and finding finding ways to bring that in Um, i think you know that that's where the real gap is and i don't see that we're talking about that as much as what some of what we've been seeing the last few years. Yeah. Now, it's one we talk about on a regular basis here is the skills gap. And we've have had some folks on from the Cyber Texas Foundation and a, a number of, of groups that we've talked to about uh, that. Congressman Hurd mentioned it as well. It's one of his big things is even starting down in middle school from a training perspective to get more folks interested to be uh, on the good guys team because those bad guys, it pays pretty well to be a bad guy. Uh, so uh, speaking of paying well to be a bad guy, and this kind of ties into where we're going after the bottom of the hour break, is uh, phishing. Uh, can you go ahead and give uh, our audience kind of 30 seconds on, on what's phishing and, and what are we going to see from it in 2017? Phishing is that, that, tech, that 
aspect that is just not going away. You get those crazy emails. It looks like it's coming from your bank, for example. It's not. Sometimes they end up in your trash uh, bin of your mailbox. Sometimes they don't. Um, these continue to be, you know, something like 99% of all email traffic is this malicious type of activity. And it's a key tool that hackers are using in pretty much all of the all of the breaches going on in the world today. Yeah. So those uh, emails, if uh, you get one from me that says you should uh, wire money to you, that's not a real email. I'll never send you an email asking for a wire transfer. And uh, most of the folks you should be getting them from should not be asking for that over an email as well. Use an out-of-band verification. So if you do get something like that, call the person on the phone, see them in person, use something that's not email to communicate and verify. We're going to go ahead and take a bottom of the hour break here. I will be back with Stephanie where we will talk election hacking. And if you don't know what Grizzly Step is, you can hang out after the break and learn. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined this week by Stephanie ewing Otmers from Delta Risk, and uh, we're going to talk election hacking in this segment of the program. Uh, before the break, we uh, covered some top security trends for 2017. If you missed that, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube. Uh, we have the rebroadcast going out on iTunes podcasts and Pocket Casts as well. And then there's always our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. So uh, if you've uh, been around in America and paid attention to the, the news at all, and maybe even if you don't normally listen to the news, uh, but you happen to even listen just to regular morning drive time uh, talk radio or even other radio stations, You've, I'm sure you heard something about election hacking. Uh, so there was a lot published out here. Uh, we're going to dive in a little bit into uh, what they call grizzly step. And this is really just about, like, what did the Russians do to our elections here um, over the course of uh, this election cycle? And then what is the election hacking as it breaks down overall? So, uh, Stephanie, I guess maybe we'll take a step uh, back a little bit and just talk about election hacking and election tampering um, at a broad level to begin with? So, I mean, I, I think that the thing that might surprise the audience most, um, considering all the news that has been out there the last few months, is that this whole concept of election hacking is actually not new. Um, it's been going on in different shapes or forms uh, and forms for many years. And um, there has been other news that has just not been escalated to the level of, you know, this election cycle. Um, and in, in other regions of the world, it's been even more prevalent. Um, like in Latin America, for example, there have been um, a lot of documented cases where this type of thing goes on. Yeah. Um, so mean, we're not talking about a new concept here. Yeah. And... And this is where it breaks down into a couple of different categories. So like, there's all this stuff about fake news or um, people's accounts getting hacked, and we'll get into those details a little bit. But as you, like, you talk about some of that election hacking down in South America, um, there's direct potentially, it looks like, 
tampering with voting machines, tampering with the actual vote count in those systems. Um, is that the same thing that happened here in this cycle in America, as far as we know, or is that different? I, I definitely think some of the motivations are slightly different, um, but there are some commonalities. I mean, what you're talking about is political disruption, right? Um, and so that is one fundamental, you know, motivating factor for these attacks. But we're also just, it's also the age-old nation-state espionage. So in um, election years, I mean, it's, there's still that need, you know, there's still that ongoing espionage type um, activity that's been going on around other things. They're still trying to get at what are the secrets, what's in people's email, you know, what's what's going to disrupt. And particular, and here in the United States, those attacks against us are looking at disrupting our American way of life, our our power, you know, as a world leader. Um, these things aren't new or surprising. Yeah. I mean, this, as you said, this goes back. Some of this now is moving to cyber hacking and, and hacking instead of other human intelligence uh, vectors. But this has been going on before the, the dawn of cyber. And, and folks have been trying to get into uh, the election machines. There's been uh, rumors for years, if you uh, follow, like, the state-level politics in some of the states across the U.S. of, like, boxes full of votes appearing or boxes full of votes disappearing. This is even back in the paper ballot um, days. And especially if you go back into the, the 1800s, or early 1900s here in the U.S., those type of conspiracies were uh, fairly common. Um, as far as, as I've read on this uh, Russian or other uh, foreign intelligence hacking of this election, though, they, they weren't able to get into the voting machines directly. They were able to uh, compromise a number of high profiles individuals their their security and their accounts but did you hear anything about actual direct uh, voting machine tampering in this election there doesn't seem to be any indications of evidence of that type of activity it seemed to be more fundamentally you know um i think the uh although the evidence is loose and still you know unproven um, the idea is that um, the circumstances around these attempts are more to influence um, the voters, more to influence the political climate versus actually accessing voter data um, and voting machines and, and the vote count itself. Yeah. So as we go through these uh, attackers and they're going to try to, to influence elections, uh, or even just the nation-state attackers um, that are coming across. So the uh, there's investigations that go on out there. They publish these in a, a joint analysis report. They call them a JAR. This is not a, a Java file for any software developers listening. Can you help us, uh, audience, understand a little bit about what is a joint analysis report and, and how do we go from these federal agencies doing investigations until there's something published that we can all read as citizens? Exactly. So what happens is, you know, we've got a lot of cyber expertise in our federal government. So the Department of Homeland Security, um, in the in the FBI, they come together and there was an extensive investigation of the situation um, related to Russian hacking. And I'm going to be positive on it. They they do their best to uh, take a careful look at all of the evidence to lay that out in a way that is declassified so that it can be shared with the with the public. Um, they put in, you know, a, a certain level of technical details 
um, into a format that can be utilized by anyone in any organization. The idea being that they will share with us indicators of compromise, um, aliases, you know, details that will help us go back to our organizations, to our IT shops, and look for these things to see, um, to block these things, to protect ourselves, to mitigate um, from future attacks, that sort of thing. So it is valuable to go and pull these reports as they're made published, uh, typically through the US CERT, uh, us-cert.gov is where you'll find these type of reports. Folks may be um, in organizations like InfraGuard, local chapters of InfraGuard, for example, will share these type of reports. And again, it's for us to go back and take a look in our IT shop and make adjustments and apply mitigations. Yeah, and for those of you looking for, for InfraGuard um, in your favorite search engine, that's I-N-F-R-A-G-A-R-D, uh, no G, and it's not the full word guard spelled the uh, normal way. So as you look through this, and I read this Grizzly Step report a while ago when it initially came out back in December, and for I think folks in the security industry were a little bit annoyed potentially and underwhelmed because they're like, well, nothing here happened that, or you, nothing's disclosed that doesn't happen all the time. Uh, this goes through and, and they lay out a lot of things here. I think this is a report that was written in a way to be accessible by business professionals everywhere. So th this one even to me feels a little bit less technical than many of the other reports because I think they expected to have millions of people accessing and reading this. It was mentioned on CNN and uh, a number of places out there across the the news media um, to talk about this program but it, it breaks down and it says that in the summer of 2015 uh, one of these russian groups that was identified uh, sent out a thousand spear phishing emails and we talked about phishing before the break if you missed that uh, you can listen to the rebroadcast of this episode on tuesday next week it'll be available on youtube and the rest of our streaming services but uh phishing is those emails that try to trick people into doing something that they shouldn't do um, and they sent this out to a thousand folks and this is one where you can have your security uh, training 99% effective and still 10 people inside of your organization will have clicked on this and then they installed a remote access tool so this is out of that phishing email the hackers now have 10 computers on your network or in this case in the network of uh, major political organizations in the US now they have 10 computers where they're on the inside and they can start to see all the emails. They don't have to hack a password or anything at that point. They're on your computer. Like they sent you an email, they never necessarily cracked your password. And now they're there seeing all the emails that that individual is copied on um, or blind copied on. Or if that individual um, happens to have access to shared network drives, they can now see all of that information across an organization that those 10 people can see. Um, and this is the, the way that they get in and then start to uh, pull down campaign strategy plans and what's our next move so you know if, if we can find what the dnc's uh campaign strategy is for the next 30 days and you know share that you know or you know take advantage of that these are the kind of things that they were basically cyber spying yeah and at that point that as a, a bad actor they can decide which information to release and what not to release so um, if you have a motive then you can Obviously, if you go through um, any set of information, you can cherry pick documents or emails or uh, things that make the organization look bad. Potentially, even if you're in there as a, a hacker, 
you could send a fake email from one of those people. So like this might be an email that was legitimately sent from Bob's account, but it wasn't actually Bob that sent it. It was a hacker with remote access tool logged into Bob's computer that then um, tells somebody else to go do something and then they do it. Or it's something that paints Bob in a bad light. And then the press runs this article that Bob said something outlandish and you're in the point of that trying to to prove that i didn't send that email from my own email account and you basically have to admit it, you're hacked and it's not just email it's not just email so yeah. some of the more current cases as well include uh, compromise of folks twitter accounts so high level profile uh, political folks that have had their twitter accounts compromised so things that get posted out seem to be coming from that individual but um, were not initiated by that person and that kind of falls into that category of what can you believe in social media in light of all this compromise um, of these um, key tools that we're using, for example, in an election year. Um, what can you really trust to be real news, uh, real messages from the actual person that you think is your candidate and their affiliates, you know, your political party, these sort of things, because all of these can be uh, compromise, spoof, taken advantage of, and it's become like just this crazy hodgepodge of things out in social media. And how is the average person supposed to know what's real and what's not real? Yeah. And at the, the pace the news cycle is moving at now as well. So if Bob is a uh, political uh, committee high level member and Bob tweets out something, if I'm a reporter for a news agency, do I take that as truth? Do I try to call Bob on the phone and prove it first and let somebody else break the story that this is going to be tied to? So you may have this hacked tweet that then turns into a news article that then turns into 20 news articles. And then we find out three days later that Bob didn't really tweet this. And it, it's the equivalent of like the uh, corrections in the newspaper where you flip through to the inside of uh, the page two and then down at the bottom there's the annotations and corrections of, oh yeah, that actually didn't, Bob never really said that. Um, Bob's account There's no was redaction in today's social media world, yeah. you know. No one notices that. So that yeah. what ends up being that propaganda, that fake hacked tweet becomes truth in many folks eyes because they read it from their trusted news organization so it's a very uh, difficult situation because those reporters are paid to break news stories they're paid to cover current topics and get people to uh, read their uh, view and perspective on it and in order to do that they need to be able to be timely with the delivery but how do you stay timely while staying truthful because i think we're going to have organizations that have been historically trusted that over this last cycle accidentally broke things that were not true because they were tricked by the hackers as well, that their readers are going to lose or their listeners are going to lose trust um, in them as a journalist. Exactly. So th that's been definitely one of the huge challenges, even for me personally, I would say in my experience with this election cycle is to really, it's taken so much more time and effort to get to the bottom of what is the true position that a candidate has um, what is the history? What is the record? You know, and I'm not just talking about for, you know, the presidential election. I'm talking about for all other aspects, all other roles and positions. It's been incredibly challenging for an average person to weed through and find out what what is the true position, the policy so that I can make an educated decision so that my neighbor can make an educated decision on who they want to vote for to best be aligned to their beliefs and the way they want to see the, the direction of the country going. Yeah. So that 
that's this key tactic is so much disruption and noise that impedes our ability to um, live our democracy. Yeah. And and with the, the age of the Internet, and it's no longer just three or four broadcast uh, channels where they have a nightly news and they have a political talk show and they uh, may vet the advertising that goes up there. Now, I mean, I can go to a domain registrar and I can register uh, thisisthetruth.com. Somebody's probably already registered that one, but I can pick something that sounds similar to that. And then I can start running news stories on it. Like there's no background checking. There's no vetting. There's no proving. Yeah. It just, I mean, it, it's $12 to register a domain and, and another $8 to start running a website. And for $20, I can start spreading fake news. And if I'm a nation state level actor and I have a $10 million budget, I can set up thousands and thousands of fake news sites. Right. So if you're online and you're trying to even double check and fact check this and you go, you know what? I saw the same similar content, not the same content, but bylines. It looked like real reporters covered this and it's 20 different sites covered the same thing. That doesn't even necessarily guarantee it's true. Exactly. Exactly. It's incredibly challenging. And then I think one of the other things we've seen a lot of um, in the last few years, which folks may not really even realize is happening is um, these sort of, hired cyber armies of so it's fake profiles basically they're paying folks to or they're automating it in such a way that a profile of brett is created with a very handsome picture and you know a little bit of information and this individual is engaging in a lot of commentary um, on facebook posts and twitter and Instagram and all these different things and imagine that there's thousands of these so you know there's sort of that herd kind of mentality in these type of process when you you know average people will start to look at the comments of others around them and be influenced and persuaded by those things so what if you come to know that those aren't real people yeah those those aren't really your neighbors that's a, a manufactured army of social media profiles that are just putting out the propaganda, then how does that change your perspective on what you believe and the things that you're reading and commenting on? Yeah, and a, a number of the major news organizations uh, threw in the towel on this, actually. They just gave up and turned off commenting on their articles uh, and on their websites uh, because they felt that they couldn't weed out who are the real people writing a, a quote, dear editor letter, um, which is what those comments are, the digital version of that, versus a, a fake account doing this. Uh, we have one of the things they call it is astroturfing is one of the, the terms that they uh, use to go out where you flood in this uh, army of fake folks that will sway the discussion. So you might have two real people making real salient points, but if you have 100 fake people the real points get washed out and they're gone. Exactly. And it, it becomes an inflammatory situation in a lot of those cases, which turns off the average educated person that wants to participate in dialogue. Yeah. So this incident report goes through uh, a number of detailed mitigation things that a security team should be doing to keep uh, individuals and systems safe. And as I read through this report, switching topics just a little bit uh, tied to this is these top seven mitigation strategies and the the top eight risks uh all look like things that we've all seen before that 
these are things that aren't even getting done at major nationwide political organizations are not following these um, top seven mitigation strategies or the, the top eight uh, risks in addressing them. And I'm not sure if the report's actually saying that the agencies were not doing these things. I think it's more of a reinforcement on these are fundamentals, um, backups, risk analysis, training, vulnerability scanning, patching, whitelisting, incident response, business continuity, and penetration testing. These are fundamentals in security programs. Um, unfortunately, this is a conversation that we have a lot in the cybersecurity industry is, you know, we can come out with all these new technologies, these new software products, these, you know, appliances and agents and things in security, but bottom line, it doesn't replace these fundamental practices that we have to be really, really good at all the time in our security programs. And so when these kind of reports come out, again, a lot of times it seems like this is not new, and that can be frustrating. Um, we can, there's not going to be a magic pill that um, helps us lose that 100 pounds of vulnerability. Yeah. You know, we've got to keep at these fundamentals. For sure. And I think as, as you get into these um, national political organizations or even state political organizations or local in a, a city the size of San Antonio, um, you, you also have to be willing to tabletop an insider threat. And I think that most of the folks are not willing to have that um, conversation right now and to think about it. So like in your background, you worked for a large um, public utility and in your role there, people on your team would have access to do all sorts of things an outsider would not have access to do. And when you're talking nation state level hacking and infiltration, whether it's an election or, or, um, other attacks against a country, it, you have a lot of resources and people can get compromised. And now that insider has access to do things. So how do you monitor and track what your own employees that may have been behaving perfectly normal for years working for you are not behaving normal? And they may have been an undercover, undercover human resource um, that whole time for the foreign agents, or they may have just recently been compromised by uh, a, a foreign uh, body or uh, just even a multinational criminal organization may have compromised them um, in the event to steal from you. And these are the type of things on that human side uh, that no matter what sort of technology you put in place, you, you can't necessarily address. This requires um, a whole set of, of processes that I think many folks don't want to go down the, the road of even thinking about right now. It's a good point. And, you know, when I speak with clients about insider threat one of the one of the first things that kind of barriers to that conversation is how are we defining insider threat because it has a very malicious connotation to it for valid reasons but the insider threat is not just from intended actions right insider threat also comes from unintended actions and so if we can soften that definition as we're coming into an organization that hasn't really put a robust program around insider threat and get them to understand that, okay, maybe they're not intentionally doing this, but users make mistakes and there's more training needed and we need more protections around this, then we can kind of soften that definition and then start to get a little bit more progress on creating an insider threat program. Yeah. And uh, some of the things mentioned in here under mitigation strategies um, in this report, restricting administrative privileges. Uh, I think there's across many companies, 
once people have admin, they give them admin to everything, and they don't necessarily need admin to everything. And the second one around that is just is segmentation. It talks specifically here to network segmentation into security zones, but that should apply to networks and to applications and, and all of these things you should have. Um, two-factor authentication into a lot of systems, but then also dual authorization for certain activities. So Checks and balances. Yes. If yeah. I was going to go in, say, onto the corporate file server and I needed to access five documents in a day, that might be normal. But if all of a sudden I was going to access 500 documents in a single day, something should flag somewhere. Um, someone else should have to authorize and go, yes, Brett needs access to 500 documents a day because he's um, searching through for uh, our 2016 financial audit. So this is why he's going back into all of these documents because they all tie into um, transaction requests from the auditors that, that you needed to pull up things for. But those type of things should be noticed because if I'm in there going through 500 files, which is abnormal behavior, it could be an, some a hackers on my machine because I made a mistake. It could be I'm a compromised actor now inside the system and those are the sorts of things you need to be looking at and thinking about um, to keep things safe and when that ties back to a point in, in in the first segment we were talking about this volume of data that needs to be correlated and aggregated in order to do analysis and so you add what you just said into that whole mix and it's just it's a bit overwhelming particularly for smaller and mid-sized businesses. How are you going to accomplish all of these things compared to a larger organization that has more resources to put on, you know, on it? It's, that is an ongoing challenge, um, you know, where we really want to look at managed services and security partners to come in in a smart way that fits into your strategy to help you with some of these things because most organizations are not resourced, you know, unless they're the federal government, and even the federal government has problems. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone needs help. Everyone should be working with partners because um, things are getting worse rather than better, which is good for us to have a Cyber Talk radio program. And um, I think we'll continue to gain listeners here. Hopefully, we've had a uh, put some good content forward for you uh, this week uh, out there. And um, thank you for joining us, Stephanie. Thanks for having me.